0: A rider named Paul returns to his home in suburban Flagstaff. What kind of a rider is he? We don't know. For a group of scientists who uncover the skeletal remains of what appears to be a werewolf, he's their last hope. What is this last hope? We don't know. After being scratched by the werewolf's skull, the young man appears to change into something hideous. And all this is complicated by a young female archaeologist named Natalie who has fallen in love with him. This is the story of the 1996 film Werewolf, or Arizona Werewolf, a film that made for one of the funniest episodes of Mystery Science Theater 3000. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They 500 years of democracy and peace, and what did that produce? The Cuckoo Clock. To
1: Dallas multi-pass.
0: Uh, uh, multi-patient. Multi-patient. You're
1: stupid, mimes! Stupid! Stupid! I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can, and sing at the same time. Listen.
0: Hello there. My name is Jeff Kelly. Welcome to Celluloid Days, a podcast of film and film history. Today is the fourth Monday of the month, and that means. We're going to talk about a film that has been riffed on Mystery Science Theater 3000, or one of its related shows. On this episode, I'm going to talk about a direct-to-video horror film called Werewolf from 1996. In the ending credits of the film, the title is listed as Arizona Werewolf, and I also found a newspaper article from when it was being shot that also called it Arizona Werewolf, so I believe that was its original name. The thing about this film, it was lampooned on Mystery Science Theater 3000 just a couple years after being released. It had the record for being the quickest film from released to rift until Future War the next season. Cast member and episode director Kevin Murphy said to an audience in New York, Werewolf is a gift from God. Now in my dedication to the podcast, I watched the original film as did Nancy Fry, which she'll talk about in a little bit. I thought it was my responsibility to do so, as the Mystery Science Theater 3000 version had been heavily edited. And I thought maybe the film would make more sense if I saw the original. Hey, not so much. There is a scene cut out on the MST version in which Paul, played by Federico Calvetti, rides a cab after being picked up at the train station when he first arrives in Flagstaff. He explains to the cab driver that he was originally from Flagstaff before moving to New York. This, however, does not explain his heavy accent. In fact, three of the cast members, Calvetti, Jorge Rivero, and Andrea Miles, are all doing their best to cover up heavy accents. We'll hear from Nancy a little later, and I think she's going to talk about the original cut of the film. For those who haven't seen it, here's a quick rundown of the plot. Out in the Arizona desert, an archaeological dig is taking place. This features archaeologists Yuri, Noel, and Natalie, as well as a few workers. One of those workers is named Joel, and he's played by Joe Estevez. Yuri, the hot-headed team leader, gets in a fight with a worker named Tommy, During the battle, Tommy gets scratched by a bone that has just been uncovered and is sent to the hospital. The bones, as we soon learn, are those of a werewolf, and just being scratched by one of those bones will infect a person with lycanthropy. Meanwhile, a writer arrives in the town. He's returning to his old home in the suburbs, where he meets a creepy old gun-wielding keeper of the large estate named Sam, as well as a real estate agent named Carrie. Carrie takes him to a party later that night. The two argue and Carrie leaves in a huff. Later at the party, Paul meets Natalie after he comes to her rescue after she's being sexually harassed by Yuri. Yuri also leaves in an angry huff and decides to turn a security guard into a werewolf. He does this by injecting him, I think, with bits of the skeletal remains. While Natalie and Paul become friends by having one of the most pointless conversations in human history, the security guard slowly transforms into a werewolf. Yet he's still able to get into his car and drive away. Yuri follows in his car, and while smiling from ear to ear, he watches the security guard smash and magically flip his car over in a fiery wreck in which he is killed. Oh, and also Yuri goes to the hospital where Tommy, the one scratched at the beginning, is strapped down to a gurney. Tommy is turning into a werewolf, too, and Yuri sets him free. So he can, you know, kill and stuff. Tommy gets shot with silver bullets by Joe Estevez and his friend. Now Natalie takes Paul to see the remains of the werewolf after Paul convinces her that he can help get funding for the needed research. As they talk about the bones, Yuri enters, and a fight ensues. Yuri uses the fragile rare werewolf skull to attack Paul. Paul suffers a huge gash on his back and runs away. So that's our basic setup. Yuri and Noel think this discovery, and Paul the werewolf, are going to bring them fame and fortune, while Natalie has fallen in love with Paul and isn't concerned with millions of dollars. Now, well, do I reveal the surprise ending? This is a surprise ending that you can see coming a mile away. And as Crow T. Robot said... (sighs) Surprise ending written and conceived by a tube worm. Of course, the biggest unanswered question to the plot is what's the deal with Jorge Rivero's hair? In every scene it changes, from black and short to long and gray. It's just weird. I have this theory that he's actually bald and owns a selection of wigs. And before he leaves for the set every day, he just grabs one without thinking about it. And since he's one of the bigger stars in the production, the director doesn't feel comfortable telling him to stick to one wig. Oh, and then there's the question of the look of the werewolf. Sometimes these beasts look like an actor wearing a cheap Kmart Halloween mask. In another scene, it's a grizzly bear. Then it's plastic vampire teeth with a little makeup and hair glued to the face. There's no consistency whatsoever. And why does the girl in the white dress, who is being stalked by Paul the werewolf, already have mud on her dress before she reaches the mud puddle? Oh, I could talk about all the things in this film that don't make sense, but I'd be talking for hours. Besides, Mike and the bots do a lot better job of pointing these things out. The film was co-written and directed by Iranian American film producer, film director, and actor Tony Zarindas. It's popular around the internet to call him the Persian Ed Wood, though I couldn't find any information of where this nickname originally came from. His real name was Mohammed T. Zarindast, and for one film in 1978, The Cat in the Cage, he was billed as Tony Zarin Dast. Three words. It appears he directed films between 1962 and 76 in Iran until the late 70s or early 80s where he began directing films in the USA. Some of his other films include The Guns and the Fury from 1981, Death Flash from 1989, and Blood of His Own from 1998. You know the security guard I told you about earlier, the one who Yuri turns into a werewolf? Well, that's Tony making a cameo in his own film. Adriana Miles plays Natalie Burke, and as far as I can tell, her real name is Adriana Stasny S T A S T N Y, and she's only been in one other film, something called Nemesis from 1992, in which she is credited as just German national. Her only other credits are writing a screenplay for something called. Dwagons wagons and Leprechauns Yes, Dwagons, wagons D-W-E-G-O-N-S In 2014 Under the name Adriana Walsh And she was an executive producer For a film called Terrorize That came out last year Federico Calvetti Or Fred as he likes to be called Plays Paul And he's only got two credits Werewolf and a writer For something called Weird Tales In 1994 Jorge Rivero, the man with the ever-changing hair, apparently was a sex symbol and major box office star in Mexico. He had a career that began in 1965, and his last credit was in 2014. 124 acting credits on IMDb. He was in Rio Lobo with John Wayne. So I guess you could call him a legitimate actor. Another legitimate actor is the man who plays Noel, Richard Lynch. Richard is one of those guys you see in films and TV all the time but never know his name. At least I didn't know his name. He has 165 acting credits, including a lot of appearances on TV in the 70s and 80s. He's one of those guys that were constantly appearing in shows like Starsky and Hutch, Barnaby Jones, Charlie's Angels, and such. The films that he appeared in had names like Death Sport, Aftershock, Trancers 2, Alligator 2, The Mutation, and Puppet Master 3, Tolan's Revenge. The only other actor of note was Joe Estevez, the younger brother of Martin Sheen. Joe has been in such films as Armed for Action, Blood on the Badge, LA Goddess, Beach Babes from Beyond, Inner Sanctum 2, and Young Blood: Fresh Meat. Not quite Apocalypse Now, The Dead Zone, or The West Wing, but you know... I often wonder what Thanksgiving dinner conversation must be like at the Esteves Sheen household. Does Martin Sheen, with a bit of a snicker, ask Joe what films he's currently working on? But you know, it's easy to make fun of Joe and his career, but look, not only do I give Joe credit for keeping his real name, but he does have... Get this, 311 credits on IMDb, including three completed, not yet released films, five in post-production, one currently filming, four in pre-production, and three films that have been announced. Hey, laugh at Joe all you want, but he keeps working. Now this is a film where I just couldn't find out any real information, but then I found a newspaper article on newspaper.com. It was from July 5th, 1994, from the Lansing County Times, from the town of Susanville, California. On page 8A, the headline read, HOWL! It was in capital letters with three exclamation points. Underneath it said, A Swedish Werewolf in Susanville! And other oddities of the movie biz. Now if I looked up Susanville... And it had a population of about 16,000 in 2020, so it's not a very large town. And from what I read in this article, they seemed pretty pleased that a movie was being filmed there. Start setting up the motion picture cameras and mega-powered lights in a place like Susanville, and it doesn't take long for people to determine you're from out of town. That's exactly what happened when Tony Zarindas, producer-director of the soon-to-be-completed monster movie called Arizona Werewolf, arrived in Susanville with a cast and crew recently. For the next three days, area residents and other out-of-towners would be exposed to a world completely alien to most of them. For most, the long, late hours would become a virtual addiction as they become part of Hollywood magic. Actually, the article doesn't say a lot, except both the party scene at the beginning and all the lab scenes were filmed at the Susannaville Courthouse, and the bar scene where they play pool was filmed at Bill Breyer's Pioneer Saloon. And there was a bit of an interview with the other female actor, Heidi Bjorn. Heidi plays Carrie, the real estate agent, and apparently she was supposed to play the lead before it was given to Adriana Miles. I would bet there's a whole interesting story there. Anyway, she said she took this role in the hopes of getting an agent. She said, It's tough to get an agent out there. This is basically a break for me. Unfortunately, Werewolf is her only acting credit. Also, there's a short interview with Federico Calvetti, who, the article says, is from Sweden, but came to New York to be an actor. He says he wants to keep on acting. You've got to keep working at it, he said. Only the strong survive. According to IMDb, this was his last film. Anyway, now we're going to take a break and check in with Nancy and hear her thoughts on the classic film Werewolf.
1: Since this is our first Mystery Science Theater 3000 episode, I feel like giving a little personal history. I came to the show late It was around mm, 1991, maybe. I was living in Santa Cruz, California, married to my first husband, and we went to another couple's house for a Saturday night casual dinner. Their TV was on in the family room, and it was playing an old black-and-white genre film of some kind. There seemed to be some kind of heckling playing over the film, guys making snarky comments. What are you watching? I asked. Oh, it's Mystery Science Theater 3000, she said. You'd probably love it. They take old, bad movies and do a running commentary. It's hilarious. After a few minutes of watching, I was hooked. Years later, I'd learn about the intellectual diversity of the writing staff, and that is definitely part of the secret sauce that made MST3K such a success. In every episode, there are jokes for everybody, covering history, philosophy, music theory, literature, sports, pop culture, film analysis, you name it. Like so many others back then, I would set my VCR up to record episodes, especially when they ran late at night on, say, Comedy Central. Those shows have endless rewatchability, and they kept me company through some dark times in my life. Speaking of dark... Let's get out our blue day-for-night filters and talk about this week's movie from Season 9 of MST3K, Werewolf. As an experiment, hi Dr. Forrester, I thought I'd watch the original, unriffed version of the film. Just as I suspected, the folks at Best Brains did a lot of creative editing for timing and possible sexual situations. MST is a family show, after all, so no skin, please. Something else they cut was padding. Even in the MST version, this film has padding to spare. But the original has enough padding to stuff a good-sized sofa. I mean, it's typical for low-budget directors to unnecessarily stretch out scenes and sequences and exposition for budgetary reasons and to reach a reasonable, saleable runtime. But this film really delivers the fluff. First, we have several minutes of just plain driving. Right at the top. They establish the heck out of that desert location. Inexplicably, it's accompanied by thumping loud action sequence music that really doesn't fit the bleak monochromatic landscape and the quiet driving. Second, I love me some techno babble. Tech talk needs to be there for a reason. In Werewolf, we get draggy, boring scenes of usually team leader Niles anthropology-splaining something nonsensical to the pretty girl. I get exposition to give your audience a clue, but this is so ham-fisted. The whole exposition scene at the dig with the skeleton is so much better with the edits. The original script and editing definitely violate the come-in-late, get-out-early method of scene construction. Three... The transformations from man to wolf go on a lot longer than justified by the low-rent prosthetics. Okay, we get it. He's transforming. Unless you have Rick Baker doing your effects, a few seconds is plenty. Fourth, I kind of figured there had to be a sex scene that they cut. Well, yeah, it's there. But even in the original version, it's really weirdly edited. Trust me, you didn't miss anything. Now... This movie has some really weird casting, as Jeff has probably mentioned. It's a cornucopia of non-American accents and wildly differing levels of acting talent. For starters, George, or Jorge, Rivera, gets top billing, but he's the antagonist. He's also insanely over-the-top as the bad guy, Yuri, who's basically a low-IQ psychopath. How in the world is he employed as a field anthropologist— Why does Niles keep him on the team? It's not particularly believable. The riffing changes the horrible Yuri from grating Psycho to comic relief. That teeth-clenching, strained, growling delivery of every single line. At the cocktail party, after being told by Niles to go take a walk, because he's drunk, and he grates out, Yeah, I'll take a walk. And then Bill Corbett, with the same grinding delivery adds, over to Kirk Douglas's house. I kind of laughed hard. Yuri is such low-hanging fruit. The gal who plays Natalie is darn cute. That's really not debatable. But she's so out of her depth. She must have learned her lines phonetically, and it shows. To be fair, she really seems to be working hard at acting. She's just not very good at it. I wish more real actors put this much effort into their roles. Now, our hero, Paul, basically a low-budget Andy Garcia, and he's not very likable. Putting him on screen with the above gal results in kind of net-negative screen chemistry. Not since Anakin and Amidala, two fictional characters, had less plausible interest in each other. Now, the sound design in this thing is funny, or at least eyebrow-raising, all on its own. But I think somebody's cousin's boyfriend's uncle did this score. Some of it's fine, it's nice and orchestral, if a bit heavy on the This is Arizona, so here are some really loud Navajo drums element. Then there's the voice layering. Why use just one actor's in-camera groans or screams when we can add more looped tracks of additional screams and groans? Now let's talk about the term movie loaf. I don't remember what episode it was in, or maybe it was in the book, The Amazing Colossal Episode Guide, but... MST guys referred to some really bad film as less of a movie and more of a movie loaf, chunked and formed out of real movie parts. I distinctly remember Tom Servo saying this at some point. In this case, the sequence starting with Natalie and Paul looking at his Yuri-inflicted boo-boo in his bedroom and ending with Carrie, I guess she's a real estate agent, entering the house looking for Paul is a loaf in the Rift version for sure. But somehow, it's even worse in the original. When does he leave Natalie, post-coitus, to go attack the makeout out teams in the Jeep? As Mike says in the Rift version, So whatever they did in bed blew him out of his room and halfway across town? And what time is it when he gets back? And When did Natalie leave? Did we miss a whole day? Is this another night? Because we go through another transformation sequence then. And then what's Carrie's motivation for coming over and letting herself into his house? I don't know. It's just a bunch of scenes lumped together that kind of give me narrative whiplash. I could drone on and on about the inexplicable and sometimes explicable elements that make this film perfect for riffing, The bland first reveal of the first werewolf, the suspense-deflating wide shot of Jeep Girl running down the road, Sam the caretaker groaning in horror but advancing on werewolf Paul, the grip truck cameo, the we've-run-out-of-story ending just as anticlimactic and pointless in the original cut as the Rift version. My final vote? MST3K version is definitely better all around. Everything they cut out needed to go. Also, all of the locations were so not Flagstaff or anywhere else in Arizona. Yanaglachi baby. Hey, thanks, Nancy.
0: And you know, I think I watched the same VHS rip on YouTube as you did. Well, I did some research because that cut during the sex scene seems a little abrupt. And yes, there was actually a much longer, much more explicit sex scene that you can find on the Internet. I looked and I found it. Hey, hey, only for research. But for everybody out there, here's the thing. Yeah, you can hunt around and find it like I did, but let me warn you, you might be taken to some questionable websites, so I wouldn't recommend it. And Nancy, your ending comments when it came to the film reminded me of a Crow T-Robot line during the Rift version. You know, it's economical not to have a storyline, because then you can just film people saying things. (laughs) Anyway, now it's time for me to talk about the MST-3K version. This was the fourth show of the ninth season. The main cast was Michael J. Nelson, who plays Mike Nelson, Bill Corbett as Crow T. Robot and The Observer, Kevin Murphy as Tom Servo and Professor Bobo, and, of course, the wonderful Mary Jo Peel as Pearl Forrester. In this show, which is one of my favorites, there are just so many great bits and jokes. But now I've got a small confession to make. I talk of myself as a huge Mystery Science Theater 3000 fan, but I have to admit, I didn't see this episode when it was originally on. For some reason, back in the day, I thought the Mike shows were just not as good as the Joel ones, and after both TV's Frank and Dr. Forrester left, I sort of gave up on the show. I didn't watch many that were on the Sci-Fi channel. Hey, don't look at me that way! I feel enough shame as it is! Now, when Pluto TV started their MST3K channel, I started watching them, and I found out just how wrong I was. Some of those later Mike episodes are the finest episodes. By the way, if you don't know about Pluto TV, it's a free streaming service, and they have both an MST channel and a Tracks channel. You'll have to deal with commercials, but the original show had commercials anyway, so... We begin with Mike thinking that he's James Lipton from inside the actor's studio. Apparently, from what I've read, James Lipton himself was delighted by this parody. But after a commercial break, Mike attempts to climb down from the Satellite of Love, since it's in geosynchronous orbit with the Earth, and ends up in Pearl's castle. While that was a pretty funny bit, it's the jokes during the movie that really make this episode memorable to me. Like I said, Joe Estevez is in the film, and they love to make fun of Joe Estevez. Soon after the bones are discovered in the desert, Noel tells Joe he can leave. Joe walks a few paces away, then turns and gazes. T Robot yells things like, Go home, Joe. All the way. Good boy. Bye, Joe. And later in the film, when Joe asks another character a question... Crow yells out, Well, I'm not supposed to listen to people who aren't in the movie, but... On the MST3K DVD set that I own, I think it's for Soul Taker, another film with Joe Estevez, there's an interview with Joe in the DVD extras. Joe doesn't sound bitter or angry and says he gets the joke. In fact, he said that his kids would get happily excited when they learned that one of their dad's films was going to be featured. Now, there's a joke when Natalie tells Paul that he's their last hope. One of the three says, maybe someday we'll know what he's the best hope for. Now, to be fair, there's a scene cut out from the original film in which Paul tells her that he could help get funding for their research from his New York friends. Of course, in the film, there's no mentioning of the fact they need money or what happens if they don't get money. But why nitpick? But, you know, I began to think about this. If one had discovered werewolf bones, and also discovered that a scratch from those werewolf bones would make the scratchy into a werewolf, well, then I really don't think funding would be a problem. I could be wrong. Now, the host segments include Mike and the bots coming up with the brothers of other famous actors that could be in a werewolf movie. The second bit is the three of them in an all-girl group singing Were-O-Werewolf about Cindy's doomed relationship with her werewolf boyfriend. The song was written by Michael J. Nelson and Mary Jo Peel. From then on, it's about Mike, who has been scratched by Crow, becoming a werecrow. The end of the show has one of the most charming bits I think I've ever seen on Mystery Science Theater. It takes place at Pearl's castle, in which Pearl wants to create her own werewolf. Brain Guy gets a peasant to be the test subject, while it was Bobo's job to bring in a wolf. But instead, Bobo brings in a Cocker Spaniel. Now, of course, Bobo is played by Kevin Murphy, and the dog used was his own pet named Humphrey, and you can sort of tell by watching the show. For fun, I thought I'd share some of my favorite bits. There's the bit where the three archaeologists are in a lab looking at bones, and Noel says, at the risk of sounding nuts, and Crow responds, I've replaced my toes with grapes. And when Paul and Natalie first see each other at the party, Servo says, I see some really stupid children being born as a result of these two meetings. And a few minutes later, when Natalie apologizes for Noel being drunk and rude, Paul says he has no class. Natalie says, you're right, he has no class. Then Crow says, The cheese ball's got no freaking class. But I think the line that always gets me to burst out laughing no matter how many times I hear it is when Paul the werewolf returns to his home and the homophobic keep Sam, who for some reason doesn't turn and run, asks Paul if he's a werewolf. Crow has the great line, No, I'm a squirrel monkey. Of course I'm a werewolf. Now I found a site called MST3K Fandom, and they had a bit of trivia I thought I'd share. The helmet prop Mike uses during his ladder descent previously appeared during Mike's spacewalk in Experiment 902. During the host segment, when Mike turns into a werecrow and asks Crow what to expect, Crow mentions that his voice will change every seven years or so. This is a reference to the fact that Bill Corbett took over the voice of Crow t robot from Trace Bill after the seventh season. Werewolf was one of the films used in the 2013 Turkey Day Marathon based on fans' recommendations to Joel Hodgson. It aired third during Turkey Day 13 and third during Turkey Day 19. This is the episode the Sci-Fi Channel submitted for Emmy consideration. It was not nominated. It ranked 8th in the top 100 episodes as chosen by backers of the Bring Back Mystery Science Theater 3000 campaign. Like I said, that was from a site called MST3K Fandom, and I'll have a link to it in the show notes for today's episode. Now, one more thing really makes this show special to me. You know, in the early days of Mystery Science Theater... The trio left as soon as the end came up on the screen. They could do this because those old, low-budget 1950s films didn't have ending credits. But eventually, they started riffing more modern movies, like Werewolf, for instance, which was only two years old. And because of rules and regulations, they are required to show all the ending credits. So the writers of Mystery Science Theater had to come up with something for the characters to do while the credits went by. In this case, they did something unique. They added lyrics to the ending music, but not just any lyrics, but the lyrics to a wide range of songs. Here's a sample of that. Well, they ran through the briars, and they ran through the brambles, and they ran through the places where a rabbit wouldn't go. Gypsies, tramps, and thieves, we heard it from the people of the town. Tusk.
1: High on a hill with a lonely goat herd. Lay, yodel,
0: lay, yodel, lay, comes Santa Claus. Here comes Santa Claus. Right down Santa Claus Lane. Toss! Give it away, give it away, give it away now. That's just a taste. I'm not sure how much I can legally play. So, bottom line, this is one of those episodes that no matter how many times I've seen it, I'll watch it again and again. And as far as the movie Werewolf goes, you know, there are those films that come out where you just have to scratch your head and and, and and Scream, wasn't somebody paying attention? Couldn't somebody go up to Adriana and say, it's werewolf? Werewolf? No, werewolf. Were, say it. And maybe they did, but she just couldn't say it. I don't know, but heck, it's the freaking title of your movie. It's impossible, werewolves. This is
1: absolutely fascinating.
0: Right? A little bit before I go. Both versions of this film, the original and the MST version, are available on YouTube if you want to check them out. Many MST, 3K, and Rift Track films are also available on Amazon Prime, some free and some you have to pay. I think Werewolf right now is one of the episodes you have to pay to watch. Can I also recommend The Mads? Once a month, the second Tuesday of the month, Trace You and Frank Conniff riff a movie live on the internet. The price to watch these shows? Only $10. And you also get a free digital download of the film. On most shows, they have a special guest. Not too long ago, they did Manos, The Hands of Fate, and they had Jackie Newman-Jones, the woman who played the little girl Debbie, in the film as a guest. The next episode will be on March 8th, and they'll be doing the 1961 classic The Devil's Hand, starring Alan Alda's dad. I know I'll be watching. I'd like to apologize, too, if listening to my shows lately, you've heard a slight thumping noise in the background every now and again. i got to reorganize myself. That's actually my knee hitting the coffee table that my mic sits on. And I don't even realize I'm doing it because it doesn't make any actual noise that I can hear, but then I hear it when I play it back. And I cut most of them out and re-recorded a few lines here and there to get rid of bad ones, but there's a few that you can still slightly hear in the background and uh, I'll figure that out So I'm always looking for film suggestions I'm still looking for a film to watch next month, and I have a new email address you can use Unfortunately every variation of Celluloid Days was already taken so my email address for this show is daysofcelluloid at gmail.com Days of celluloid, all one word. That's the best I could do. Feel free to email me for any reason, if, even if it's just to say hi. Or if you have a suggestion, you can use my email address. I'm always looking for suggestions. You can also contact me through my Coffee with Jeff Facebook page or my Coffee with Jeff Twitter page. You know, someday I'll get around to setting those up for celluloid days. Next week, it'll be the first Monday of the month, and that means I'm going back to film history. I'm going to talk about Thomas Edison and his real involvement with the invention of the motion picture. And I'm guessing here, but I think Nancy's going to have something to say on the subject as well. And Russell. I'm going to try to be fair. Russell has already emailed me with a few thoughts, so I hope you'll join us. And one last favor I ask of you, wherever you download this podcast or stream this podcast, if you could leave me a review, it would be nice if it was a good one. I would be forever grateful. Hey, thanks for listening. Take care, stay healthy, and I'll be back next Monday with something exciting, a bit of history. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The
1: cuckoo clock. Two multipass. Yeah. The,
0: uh, multipass. you know are stupid mimes.
1: Stupid, stupid. I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again. The high court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can and sing at the same time.